Welcome to the podcast, Speak Your Peace. This is a podcast about Utah's history. My name is Brad Westwood. I'm senior public historian at the Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. The past is never truly in the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks to both our shared and to our separate identities. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah's history share their insights and discoveries. When you're looking forward, planning for the future, we highly recommend you first examine carefully the past. This is what this podcast strives to do for Utah for its many diverse, geographically varied communities. If there is one place, one podcast to get your Utah history, this is the place. Today's guest is Amy Berry from the Utah Division of State History. She's the program manager for the state cemetery and burial database. Amy has managed the Utah Cemetery and Burial Program at Utah State History for almost five years. Or has it been past five years, Amy? Welcome. No, it's coming up on five. I thought so. I remember when you came on board. Amy enjoys finding ways to bring history alive uh, and making it interesting. She has a background in public administration and likes to use those skills to make government more accessible to everyone. Before this position, Amy spent a lot of time in cemeteries, and now she enjoys having a professional reason to be there. Welcome, Amy Berry, to speak your piece. Thank you. I'm going to ask you um, to first tell us a bit about the website, also the, web, the, um, um, the site location, the URL. Yeah, so people can visit our website at history.utah.gov forward slash cemeteries. They'll specifically get linked to find a person, find a cemetery. The Utah Burials Database is unique because no other state does this, but I am mandated by the state to collect burial information from the cemeteries and put it in a searchable database and also to maintain a list of all the cemeteries in Utah. I do like to say that my job will never be done. (laughs) So it's never complete and it's never 100% accurate. But it is a, a growing list and a work in progress at all times. Amy, what's the breadth and depth? Depth. Give us some of the statistics and numbers related to it. Yeah. So our total number of records as of this morning uh, was six hundred and ninety thousand nine hundred and forty-five burial records in that database. Since I started in April of twenty fifteen, I have added over ninety-eight thousand. But I've also taken a different approach instead of only quantity but also quality i've done some reworking of the fields that are available to the public Um, so i track like um, records that i update and to try to make them more complete fill in dates and locations and relationships and if there are veterans what wars they've served in Uh, so i've updated in that time over forty nine thousand burial records so it's something i'm constantly working on it's not my full-time job. It's only about part-time of uh, my efforts. So I'm a program of one, and it's half-time. And you're a web, you, you deal with the uh, website for the Division of State yes, History. Yes, I also maintain the website, and I um, do a lot of multimedia communication-focused type stuff for uh, state history. So we also have, um, as of this morning, 621 cemeteries in 621. the state. 621. Now, this is uh, reflecting a lot of individual burials that somebody got buried on a mountain or they were 
trekking to some town and people died along the way and they buried them, family cemetery. So that is also growing because there are, we have a researcher who helps me try to identify some of those unknowns uh, to the database and add those in. Uh, we also track cemeteries that are abandoned. Um, so they can be a burial of one and we call it a cemetery or it can be a small burial cemetery for families of five or whatever. Uh, so kind we track all different cemetery. levels. And we, pri- we track private um, active cemeteries and, and inactive, which is kind of a fluid term because they could still be burying, but they're not, uh, they're not selling or they're not taking on new plots, but they have plots that are purchased um, and but not occupied. And so there's a lot of different types of status. Some people call those closed, uh, but there's still burials happening. So, so your database uh, deals with uh, municipal, federal, private, uh, one burial all the way to thousands of burials. Um, and you said we're the only state that does this. Uh, There's so many places uh, with all the gene- interested in genealogy and family history. There is, uh, what is it, Billion, billion Grave? Um, there's two or three other sites. What's the difference and what is the value in your database? So uh, I think you're referring to Find a Grave and Billion Graves are two of the really popular ones out there. And I consider them to be great resources I actually use them a lot in my research to try and uh, verify data, but they give me clues. I don't use them as the ultimate source because Find a Grave and Billion Graves are user-created. So I could create a memorial for John Smith and list him in 10 different cemeteries. So there's nothing... Isn't yours more legal with the Sexton record? Mine, mine comes from the majority, I would say 95% of my data comes from the Sexton, but I also do a lot of independent research with various sources, whether, but they have to be government type related sources. They, they really have to be certified. Census, or death certificate, military records. primary sources, not just hearsay or. Right. So I will also give the caveat that I don't think there is one 100% accurate source out there anywhere. Everything is a little predicated on people. Mm-hmm. So birth certificates, death certificates, that information all comes from the family. The information that gives to the sexton is being collected from the family. Information on the gravestones comes from the family. And there's a lot of incongruity. And so sometimes finding the right dates or the right locations can require a lot of digging into various no different resources. I hadn't even thought of that, but you're right. <laughs> so uh, our database is one of a kind because it's coming from a state mandate. Mm-hmm. It's it's in uh, statute, and we're directed to do that. So that's a resource that Utah feels is important. Mm-hmm. And Utah uh, legislature back in 1997 created that and wanted to um, provide that way before we saw Find a Grave or Billion Graves or Ancestry.com. So we really led the way in that, and we continue to be a resource that no other state really does that type of collection. Well, I, at least for me, as I've used the, the database so often, I feel like this is the most reliable, uh, perhaps legal 
because it's primarily based on Sexton records, um, you, you know, you get this kind of everything, private, federal, uh, uh, municipal. I mean, it's just, a, I, I think, a much more defensible. I mean, when it's in that database, it's not a fleeting third-hand thing. It's a fairly clear data set. Correct. And and I every now and then people will ask me, how do I know this? Because especially if it's an isolated grave or a smaller uh, grave cemetery that people don't aren't as familiar with. And I can go back and usually find the sources that led me to that. So yes, it is defensible in that regard. And I don't just change things because I feel like it. <laughs> hey, what's a sexton? So a sexton, as we know them, are basically administrators of cemeteries, but there's a few different derivations of the word. I like the derivation from medieval Latin. It seems to hold the most accuracy, and it's basically defined them as a caretaker of sacred objects. In those days, sextons were part of the church, employed with the church, They whatever church it well, was, yes. and they were in charge of caretaking for the church and the grounds, which then included those church graveyards. They rang the bells. They dug the graves. <laughs> so the sacred objects were more holistic in terms of the entirety of a church's operations and property. Somehow that then transformed to, in an hour day and age, to be isolated to cemeteries. Mm -hmm. Because here, I don't know of very many church graveyards. No, in Utah, in at Utah. least as far as the settlement of the state, uh, it, it happened after the um, uh, the municipal uh, corporate um, uh, cemeteries were established. I mean, I know there were there are some private family plots, but typically we don't have graves associated with meeting houses and churches. Yeah, so, sextons uh, became known over time and in the U.S specifically to cemeteries, but they do still caretake for sacred objects. It's a great uh, definition. And I'm fascinated by the whole historical cemetery experience, these places that hold collective stories or history, these places that often uh, are carefully planned, if not groomed, garden lands. Um, such places are packed with stories from one or two people to 10,000 or more, all contained in a single plot of land. I'm, I'm intrigued by the biological snippets, the many way people express their love, um, or biographical snippets remembrance um, of those who died. Um, this way of, of uh, framing up someone's uh, life in wood and stone with poetry, religious and personal symbols and images, um, some of them somewhat humorous, uh, as well as the lists of parents and children. Um, there's so much life that's lived, and yet in just about 10 or 15 words and a few dates, we have framed up these people's lives. I'm intrigued by that way of memorializing and remembering. So as we talk further in our podcast, um, do you want to tell me a story, something about an individual? I know in your work you found these everyman stories that are involved on our the State History's Facebook page. Uh, tell us that site or how to get to those stories. How often do you do them? And let's hear one. Yeah, we have a Facebook page, Utah State History. I'm in charge of Mondays, so I tend to do a bio of somebody on Mondays. 
of a person buried in Utah. And I do like to focus on the people that you may never have known. You may never have heard of, but they all have some compelling story. So one I'll share with you, which I also think really defines Utah, because when I do these stories, I will tell you, everybody has, I start with who they were and where they were born, and they're rarely born here. So these are the people that shaped our communities. And Joe Melich, who was actually born Novak um, Bogdanovich, Bogdanovich, who changed his name for some reason. Uh, he was born in Gosip, Croatia in August 18, 1882. And Gosip is now famous for the town where Nikolai Tesla grew up. So mm. uh, that's just a little side note. <laughs> but he immigrated to the U.S. in 1902, and he first settled in Colorado. But he made his way over to Utah in 1904 because of mining, as so many immigrants did, and he settled in Bingham Canyon. He was joined by several of his brothers over time, and they actually lived in High Boy, or Highland Boy, sorry. And for those people who are familiar with that area and mining, know that Highland Boy was a mining settlement, which is now gone. It was eventually swallowed up by the mine. By the Kennecott By Bingham Canyon Mine. In 1908, though, Serbs and Croats made up more than half of the population at Highland Boy. So we see that in a lot of mining towns scattered throughout the area. You will see a majority of certain ethnic um, immigrants. They tended to uh, migrate together, together, gather together, which makes absolute sense. We all do self-segregate today. But if you're new, you want to have some familiarity. Well, one thing that crossed my mind as I hear this story is so often we hear the dominant uh, story of uh, the Utah pioneers, the, the LDS church pioneers, uh, of whom there were dozens of different nationalities. But same as it ever was, there has been all these immigrants coming constantly mm-hmm. Uh, so many during the uh, industrialization of Utah, which isn't often told. The stories aren't told. We tell the greater narrative, but we don't always tell about so many different groups that it came after for exactly. industry's sake. And I would say this is why the story of Joe Millich is so compelling in that greater context. So Joe and his brothers opened a store. They called it the Serb Mercantile Company. They were um, very entrepreneur minded because then they also owned a saloon and those became the meeting places for the Serb community. That's where they all started to congregate. He continued to distribute newspapers in the acrylic alphabet and he became a very well-known figure in the Serbian community in that mining town. And he was actually during World War I, he became a central figure in recruiting Serbs to fight in World War I. He was very successful in that. He recruited more than 200 volunteers. From Utah. Yes, who went and served in the Serb Army during World War I, and only about 15 that ended up joining the U.S. Army. So Tells a different story. They still had such a tie to their homeland, um, but they went and fought for the Serb Army in World War I. Came back. Did you by chance look to see if the uh, Utah Digital Newspaper Project has any of the newspapers? That's another line that we could ask our listeners to look into. That that idea of in your home language, in the mother tongue, there are dozens and dozens of newspapers that were produced in Utah. Yeah. Oh, there definitely were. And, And I can come across some of them. 
uh, you know, Joe was well known. He was on every committee for the Red Cross and Liberty Loan Drive. He was so active in trying to promote um, that patriotism for World War One time. And due to those efforts at the end of World War One, Serbia awarded him their highest honor, cross of honor for a civilian. And he never actually did go back to Serbia. So he was recognized across the board there. So he sent all these soldiers to help fight in their in their homeland, but he himself remained here in Utah. Yes. Yes. And after the war, Joe was elected of the Serb National Federation in 1920. He remained here. He actually founded uh, what he, his little town called Phoenix, Utah, which is right outside Highland Boy, which is also no longer there. Um, he... That organization, the Serb National Federation, served over 12,000 members nationally. Uh, so he became a very strong voice in, in that unity of Serbia in the United States. He never did leave Utah. After that, he founded Phoenix, Utah in 1919, and he kind of became the mayor. He became like the one-person town. Now, whereabouts? What county again? It was it was near Highland Boy. There oh, was a bunch so of it, different it, little towns little that sprouted up. Little network beyond mm-hmm. Bingham Canyon. Exactly. And he passed away in 1922 in July. At the time, he was also a deputy sheriff for Salt Lake County, <laughs> the mayor of Phoenix, the entrepreneur. He is buried in the Bingham City Cemetery. His wife, Mary is resting in Murray City Cemetery, and they had seven children. And one of his children ended up a Utah legislator. He ran for U.S. Congress. He didn't make it. He was a candidate for Utah governor. Um, And he, I can't remember the year he ran, but he lost to Calvin Rampton. Tell me his name. His his son's name was Michael, or Mitchell, Mitchell Millich. And he he had settled in Moab, and he was an attorney, uh, so he went on to have children who continued to be part of our civic life and try to shape our communities and our states. So, so how did you get tipped off about this this person? Is this one of those uh, serendipity moments for you no, in your research? I do a lot of reading and a lot of scouring, and I'll find interesting snippets and different articles here and there. And then I look further into it. I, I'll identify, oh, I think I might want to write a bio of this person. And I also look to highlight people who are buried throughout Utah mm-hmm. and not just Salt Lake City Cemetery or Ogden or Provo because those are the bigger ones. Believe me, they are packed with a million stories. But uh, I really try and go find the ones that are in smaller cemeteries throughout the state. Well, and it's such a powerful, um, uh, I don't know, Testament to public history, uh, the the power of what the Utah Division of State History, the Department of Heritage and Arts does is just try to get people to understand that that there is a, a story for everyone, and that there are resources that people can gather, not just for a, a private uh, a family history. I mean, this is a family history, but this is also a community history, and this is definitely a Utah story. Uh, there's so many like that that start with a thread that begins with a tombstone. Um, tell me, um, what do you think of the many efforts across the country, these grassroots organizations that have sprung up to protect, defend, and care for historic cemeteries? Um, this is happening with major cemeteries and uh, to small trails, roadside burials, this kind of effort to track, and um, it, it's kind of a ground swell it hasn't quite happened in Utah, 
Now, we're going to tell more stories in, later on in the second podcast, but what's the future of all this interest in cemeteries? There is a growing interest, and in, in the East, you see that a lot. It has not hit Utah very well. I get a lot of inquiries throughout the years. How do I take care of this gravestone? The information people get access to on YouTube or the Internet or even the cemeteries themselves is so wrong. It's actually doing more harm to the, those mm. gravestones, putting baby powder or shaving cream to try and highlight the the word, the etchings that may have mm -hmm. um, faded over time. Uh, putting WD-40 or furniture cleaner on oh, it is absolutely horrific. Stone. And that is the stuff they're hearing. So I did actually put together a gravestone preservation workshop this year, and it was uh, very targeted, and it was a high-level uh, workshop to not talk of only about cleaning, but really about his preservation correctly. Yes, and you don't you have some of this online too? It is getting there. I have a guide uh, written, and it's being reviewed by uh, Jason Church, who is the materials conservator for the National Center for Preservation and Technology and Training. Jason came out and had led this workshop, and he's to be one of the leaders in this field. And he does these workshops throughout the country, but they're mostly centered um, along the eastern portion of the United States and down in Texas. They're pretty pretty big on that. Um, but I envision not only being a resource to provide better information to the public, but starting to do those workshops myself and leading those to do better restoration. Now, unfortunately, I walk through cemeteries and I pick apart bad restoration jobs and mm -hmm. I uh, concrete love. People love concrete and that is just the worst restoration and it's not historically accurate and you do more harm eventually. The problem is a lot of those efforts to clean or repair, you don't see the damage in your lifetime. It's imperceptible. In 20 it years, though, time. it is a really hard. And you may have accelerated the disintegration to the point where there's nothing that can be done for that headstone. So I, I see it as someone interested in material culture, design history, architectural history. I mean, you have all kinds of different stones being used. Um, uh, you have these, um, um, you can track uh, design history by going through this, you know, each, this march of time, different uh, periods. Um, there's all kinds of fascinating poetry and, um, you know, the, the, the way the text, uh, the way the Masons do their work. I mean, now it's a sandblasting thing, but it used to be, Hand carved. It used to be hand carved. And There's so much of that kind of history involved, and it's it's in everyone's interest. Those who are listening, and to particularly at state history, to make sure people know how to preserve and care. And I, it's a detailed process, but I can encapsulate two rules that people can Let's go by. The first is do no harm. That's a and great the preservation second, statement. Yes, and that really applies for cemetery conservation. Uh, the second rule is. Don't do anything that cannot be undone. So when you're doing some restoration work, putting cement, setting ground-supported headstones in cement, you have done something that really cannot be undone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if you're evaluating anything you want to do to your grandparents' gravestone, do no harm and don't do anything you can't undo. Wonderful. Amy, thank you. 
You've been listening to the podcast, Speak Your Peace, where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah's history share their insights and discoveries. Today's guest has been Amy Berry from the Utah Division of State History, and she's the program manager for the Utah Cemeteries and Burial Database. In our next segment, we'll be asking Amy to dig in a little deeper into the stories about Utah cemeteries. And you have quite a few stories with you today. We're going to try to pack as many into our next segment. Speak Your Peace is a podcast recorded and engineered at the Studio Underground here in Salt Lake City. And I thank Connor Sorensen from Studio Underground, who is our sound engineer and post-production editor. I hope you'll tune in again for the next segment of Speak Your Peace. Speak Your Peace.